If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Because this morning we're going to conclude by the third sermon this uh, series of three sermons that my pastor has given me the privilege of preaching. And that is uh, an opportunity that I really cherish. And this third sermon deals with, as I have told you before, the subject uh, inspired by Watchman Nee's book called Sit, Walk, Stand, The Process of Christian Maturity. And it's important that we understand this because we have something in Christ Jesus that is unique. And by this slide I show you here, that's a small book. I held it up for you uh, last Sunday. It would take you no more than probably two or three hours to read at the most, and you'll be blessed by it, I can assure you. It is a recapturing of the sermons that Watchman Nee pre- uh, preached in China, probably sometime in the late 20s, very early, at the latest, the very early 30s. But it was a series of sermons by which he really was able to speak to the church in China in a very unique way. God used this man, no doubt, to bless thousands and to bring thousands of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also to encourage Christians and to help us in our maturity, our growth in the, in the spirit and knowledge of God, that we might be more effective witnesses for him and that we might understand and live for ourselves the victorious life in Christ Jesus that is ours. And so this morning I'm going to ask you to just bear with me as we talk a little bit about the natural division that Watchman Nee uh, clarified about the church, about this message to the church at Ephesus. First of all, as, as the Apostle Paul does, he always establishes a foundation of doctrinal truth. And he does this in chapters 1 through 3. Then last Sunday, we talked about the practical application of that doctrinal truth to our walk in Christ Jesus. The first part considered, or concerned, I should say, our position in Christ and what it means to be in Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. The second part deals with the practical application of that doctrinal truth to our lives, our Christian walk, if you will. And that's what we talked about last week. And this week, we talk about standing. Stand firm against the enemy. And we're talking about our, not only our attitude toward Jesus Christ, uh, towards Satan as he battles against us in every way he can, but also our stand before him as we are empowered by the witness of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit that indwells us. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, let's just review for a moment our position in Christ. And there Paul says to us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have a position in the heavenly places because Christ has been raised from the dead by the surpassing greatness of the power, by the mighty work of God, 
and victorious over death, and as a consequence, we say we can enjoy that same victory in which we live. Remember, I talked about the underlying principle of all of this in understanding our position in Christ is to comprehend that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do of ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon the power of God operating freely in our lives. And it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what? Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For by his doing we have done nothing. By grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. So it's important for us to understand, as he reminds us in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to remind ourselves that we are utterly and totally dependent upon Christ Jesus. We are in him. His Holy Spirit, which he sent into the world to bear witness, indwells us and empowers us and strengthens us and enables us to walk daily in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And reminding you again in this next verse of Scripture, in Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think this is one of the most significant verses of Scripture in all of the Bible, if there's such a thing. Because it's all important. It all is powerful. It all bears witness. But in particular, this one has spoken to me for years. And it reminds me that I am in Christ. I have been crucified with him. I've been buried with him. I've been resurrected with him. And with him I have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So therefore, it also reminds us in Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And in Hebrews 3.14, I would remind you again, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. We've become partakers. We are part of him. And also I remind you that as we look at what it means to really be in Christ, I said it's synonymous in every respect with abiding in him. Jesus said in John 14, verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Further on, he said in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So abiding in Christ is knowing our position in him. And it says in 1 John 2, 6, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And so we come to the Christian walk, as we talked about last week. 
a walk that is characterized, first of all, by unity of the faith, that we might become mature men and women in Christ Jesus. It's also characterized by holiness or purity. As we walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we have been called, it also is a walk in love, as it speaks about that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. It is a walk of light, in light. We are not walking in the darkness. We're not walking in the futility of our minds, as Paul reminds us, the Gentiles walked, but we are to walk in light. And lastly, we are to walk in wisdom. And that is kind of a review, essentially, of who we are. The purpose, we said, of that walk is this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to walk in order that we might produce good works, good deeds, not for the benefit of our salvation, for there's nothing we can do to earn it. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the work of God. We are to walk in a way that brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ. So he said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I also reminded you that in Titus 2.7, Paul instructed his disciple Titus, he says, In all things show yourselves to be an example of good deeds, in purity, doctrine, dignified. In Philippians 2:12 and 13, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let God be at work within you, but it is our option as to whether or not we shall allow him to do so. It also says in 2 John 1, 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. In 3 John 1, 4, the apostle says, I have no greater joy than this, but to hear the love of, or to hear my children walking in truth. It's essential that we put to practice that which we have understood and learned in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian walk. That's the way we progress. That's the way, in essence, we live and move and have our being in Him. Now we turn to chapter 6, verse 11. Actually, beginning in verse 10, where Paul admonishes the church at Ephesus to do this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist In the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up 
the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and with all power and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth to make known the book with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul says, finally, finally, and this is not a postscript, it's the conclusion. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places in him. We are to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling, in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. And therefore, we ought to stand firm against the evil one, the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. Now think about this for a moment. As we are told to be strong in the strength of the Lord, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, what does that really mean? Well, as we had said before, we are utterly and totally dependent upon him. There's no strength that we bring to the table here. There's no skills that we really have, unique to us maybe, to, uh, to fight a battle. We are dependent upon our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who empowers us to enable us to stand firm in this manner. And this is a, this is a position not of advancement as much as it is a defensive position that we are to take. We are to give no ground to the enemy. That's one of the reasons we selected that song this morning. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, it says. And that's what it's all about. Standing up, standing firm, knowing that we have a battle to fight, whether we want to realize it or not. And by the way, those first two sermons we preached about seated with Christ or sit and walking in Christ, our Christian walk, had to do with our internal, if you will, our personal struggles. This has to do, as he turns there in chapter 10, pardon me, chapter 6, verse 10, he turns his attention to an external, an external struggle. We have an enemy. The enemy of our souls, the father of all lies, as Jesus called him, Satan himself. And he is out in every way he can to defeat us. We'll talk more about that as we go on. But we need to stand firm in the strength of his might and be strong in the Lord. So why is it that we need to do this? Well, Paul goes on to explain this in verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. It's not against people that walk upon this earth. It's against people otherwise, or those, those who are rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness. Our struggle is against supernatural foes. And sometimes we don't begin to understand and think of it in those terms, but that's who we are fighting. 
And there's no way you and I and ourselves will ever be able to fight a supernatural foe. We have to depend solely and completely on Jesus Christ. So Satan's greatest deception, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next verse, his greatest deception is to get us to think that there's no battle going on here. He loves to get Christians to think that if we just trust God and are obedient to him, which we need to do truly, that there'll be no problems. We're not going to have any difficulties. Everything will be smoothed out and will work along fine. And there'll be absolutely no uh, situations in life which require us to exert ourselves extraordinarily. But that's a lie. That's why Jesus called in the father of lies. We face a supernatural foe who seeks in every way to deceive us. As I was studying this week, I finally had... And I did not realize it. Back in 1973, when we lived in Houston, I had ordered a series of sermons that were uh, done, collected by David Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've heard me mention him many times in the past. And the first six books were from Ephesians 1.1 through Ephesians 6.9. And then the, thir- the last book, which wasn't even published when I had ordered the original six, uh, I ordered this last week, and I came to it, and I, as I was perusing it, it was interesting to note that what he really talked about in over two-thirds of that book were the deceptions of the evil one. He really talked about that in great detail. He didn't talk about the armor of God. He talked about the deceptions of the evil one, how he gets Christians to believe that we stand no chance, so if we don't, why even try? Or, most of the time, I think he gets Christians to believe that he's really not a factor at all in our lives. Uh, We're not really faced with a problem here. It's just something that's mentioned. And some people are so sophisticated and so well-educated that they believe there's no enemy at all. It's just something that was expressed in order to say, these are the difficulties we face with life, and there's no supernatural element involved. But that's not true. That's the lie that Satan perpetrates every chance he gets. And so therefore we need to understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against this world in which we live, but against supernatural forces. And also we are to, in order to fight that fight, we are admonished by the apostle to stand firm. As I had mentioned This kind of denotes a defensive posture. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we don't need to go on the offensive as we think of it at times in order to gain ground. The ground has been won by Jesus Christ. He's already the victor over death and Satan. He has done it all. And that's why he is seated with the Father in heaven next to the throne of God. He no longer has to do this. It has been done. He's conquered death. And we are more than conquerors through him. So therefore, we need to understand that the work is completed, and all we need do is, as Paul admonished us, is to take up the full armor of God. Now, as I was beginning to study for this this week, I can remember I had bought many years ago, a book written by a Puritan, 
by the name of William Grinnell, who wrote an extensive volume. And in his original language, we're talking about the language of the Puritans in the uh, 17th and 18th, uh, 17th and 18th century. It's not an easy read, but there were three scholars who undertook to do an abridged version of this, which has been composed in like about a four by six size paperback book into three different volumes. And if you read that, and by, and by the way, it'd take about a year to read it. Because you need to think about all the things that uh, William Gurnall had to say as he talked about the Christian in complete armor and what that meant and how we are to fight this fight. So there's no way in the world. I mean, if we try to incorporate some of his concepts, we might be here for about half the day. But nevertheless, William Grinnell really summed it up well and in great detail in explaining what this battle is all about and why we need to take up the full armor of God. And that is because we need to resist the devil in this evil day. Now, what does it mean to resist him? What does Peter say about this? He said, if resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist him? The greatest way to resist him is to begin by putting up the full armor of God. We see here an illustration of uh, that was done. I found this on the Internet. I thought it was an interesting one in that it kind of shows all the elements of the armor of God, including the, uh, the, the girding your loins with truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and shotting our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and taking up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And it relates to all these pieces of armor. And you can imagine where Paul got this word picture he's describing here. He got it from probably as he was a prisoner, and he says this in Ephesians. He's a prisoner of Rome. And there was standing probably next to him every single day of his life a Roman soldier that was his guard. Not to guard him from attack from the outside, but to make sure that Paul didn't go anywhere. And so he had someone to look at who was probably in complete armor, or he certainly had the elements of that armor next to him so that he could see what it looked like. And so he used this word picture to begin to describe those pieces of the armor that were important. And he begins and starts with girding our loins or putting on the belt of truth, protecting ourselves. You'll see by this illustration that strapping on the belt of God's truth is essential for our spiritual protection. It also was, and in its practical sense, it was uh, to protect the soldier from assault upon some very important parts of his body. And it protected that part. And so the soldier was to gird up his, his loins, essentially his waist, with the word of truth. What does he mean? Truth. He's talking about the truth that God alone gives us. That's what's important, is his truth. Not the truth of this world, not our interpretation, but the truth that God reveals through his infallible word, which is divinely inspired and given to us even in this day and age. That's what we have to gird ourselves, to gird our loins with this. Now, as I had said before, 
If we went into great detail on even and every piece of this armor, we would be here for a long time. But I'm just going to give you a sketchy overview of what this means. Also, then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And you'll notice that the best, the breastplate of righteousness was the heaviest piece of armor that was designed to protect the vital parts. That's the heart, the lungs. And it was custom fitted, if you will. And what you see here is a picture that depicts one who would probably be the rank of a centurion, if you will. Because this was very fancy ornament and it was given to him in a way that was custom fitted and custom made. So it has a function, not only to protect, but its function is one of beauty as well. It was certainly a glorious piece of armor in which to wear. Also, the righteousness of the armor of God has nothing to do with concerning ourselves. It has to do with the righteousness, and we're talking about the righteousness not of ourselves, but of Christ Jesus. This is why it's important to understand our position in him. The righteousness of God, that righteousness which has been imputed to us. It says in Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. His faith is imputed to him as righteousness. What happened to Abraham? It was his faith that saved him. And so the faith that we have this breastplate of righteousness that we receive from Christ Jesus, not of ourselves, but from him. Satan delights in accusing us in every way and reminding us daily in every way he can that we are about as unrighteous as it comes. It says in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so therefore we need to understand that it's not our righteousness that counts. The breastplate of righteousness is the breastplate of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Also, we turn then to his comment that we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The purpose of a soldier's sandals or his shoes was to enable him to stand firm upon the ground so that he would be able to, uh, to, to fight the fight unimpeded with Slippery, with a slippery condition on the surface in which he fought. And so it was important. As a matter of fact, some of the, the history tells us that the Romans kind of embedded in those sandals rocks that enabled them to really kind of stand firm upon the ground. And back in World War I and World War II, the German army was renowned for having hobnailed boots. Well, that was the, pur- the purpose of that was to enable them to stand firm, if you will as they did battle with, against their enemy. So, so it is with us. We are to shod our feet with a preparation of the gospel of peace. And now what does it mean by the gospel of peace? We're not talking about peace that comes about from non-conflict. Jesus said in his word, that I, my peace I give to you. He said, I, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives Do I give to you? Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's the kind of peace which surpasses all understanding. It's the kind of peace that protects our hearts and minds. It's the peace that enables us 
to know that we have our confidence in Christ. He's the victor. And we're enjoying the fruits of his victory as we stand firm against the devil. We're not fighting it on our own. We're fighting it in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it's important to us to understand that we're talking about that gospel of peace, that gospel that Paul had reminded the Ephesians, having also heard the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Next, he talks about taking up the shield of faith. And this shield was no small piece. It was not just a round disc. It was a pretty much shaped oblong, could be as much as four to five feet tall. It was enabled, it enabled a group of soldiers to establish, that it was the dimes of Alexander, of phalanx, that enabled them to really almost be like a moving object that was impenetrable by the enemy's arrows, and they could move as a body with those shields above them and in front of them and around them and behind them. And they moved to really defeat the enemy in a very effective way. So these shields were important. And he talks about, and Paul does, the shield of faith. It's the faith that we have. Now, the assurance of things for which we hope, the conviction of things not seen, it says in Hebrews 11.1. That's the faith we're talking about. That's what protects us. From the enemy's assaults, regardless of his schemes or strategies, it absorbs the blows, those fiery darts of his accusation and lies regarding our salvation in Christ Jesus. He seeks to defend us and he shoots fiery darts at us day by day to let us know that we're not worthy, that we're hopeless, that we are utterly defeated because he wants us to believe just that. But we're not. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the helmet of salvation. And it has a, it's a very effective part of our, our armor because it relates to the protection of the head, which really means the protection of the mind, if you will. That brain, which is our thinking part, needs protection. And this, as you'll note, had a part to the rear, so even if they were assaulted from the back, Part of their neck was covered and enabled them to withstand uh, the attack from any quarter. And by the way, I didn't mention this, but when I was talking about the shield, the nice thing about the shield of faith is that as you hold it, regardless of where the angle of attack came from, you could move that shield to defend yourself. The helmet did the same thing for the head. And here we're talking really, in essence, to make it short and sweet, about the battle for our mind. And that's the thing that Satan is an expert at. He is really clever. His schemes, his lies, his deceptions, his maneuvering, his strategies, the wiles, as it says in the old King James, the wiles of the devil, those things are absolutely almost beyond comprehension. They are so effective at times. Were it not for the armor of God, we wouldn't stand a chance. But Christ has won that victory, I remind you again. And it says in this following verse of Scripture, uh, and then uh, let me just read this to you because I'm going to put it on the screen in a moment, but I want to read it first of all here. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, 
are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, of strongholds, as it says in the King James. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. I can remember singing that that, uh, chorus many, many years ago, back in the 70s, as we remember that at a Baptist church in Amherst, New York. And I always thought it was one of the most, uh, uh, most of the catchy tunes that would just stay with you for weeks on end as you sung it. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. We need to understand that the full armor of God, which he has given to us in Christ, is available for warfare. And indeed, we have to understand that we are faced with warfare one way or the other. It's not that we don't want it. We have no options. It's not too different than what we are faced with in the nation today when radical Islam has really declared war against us and we have people who still deny that that's a fact. They don't recognize it. They pretend like it doesn't exist. But the fact is, in the spiritual realm, Satan has declared war ever since Adam set foot in the Garden of Eden. Eden. He declared war, and he finally deceived them, and man fell, and so we are, as Adam's race, in need of redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus. So let's talk about the last weapon of our warfare, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is a weapon that's both offensive and defensive. We can use it to defend ourselves. We can use it against the enemy to attack him. So why is it essential? Because it is the word of God which is eternal and everlasting. It is the word of God which is truth. It is the word of God which is our weapon that we have available to us in every way. This is the weapon, the word of God. It's available to us. So what we do with it is our option. And in order to refute the enemy, remember what happened when Satan tried to tempt Christ? When he said, to give him, I'll give you every kingdom, all these things you need. And what did Christ say? He said, you need, we, we need to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why we need the word of God indwelling us. That's one of the purposes of memorizing Scripture, where it is effective in that as Satan tempts us, we are able to rebuke him by the Word of God. That says in Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Think about that. Any two-edged sword, it's sharper, it's living, dynamic, in every way, we can effectively use it in order to defeat the enemy. So it's important, and we could speak on that for a long time. But let's just go back to that verse of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, 
we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, for the destruction of Satan's strongholds. They are purposed for that. And lastly, Paul says this. I'm going to encourage you with all prayer and petition to pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul was asking the church at Ephesus to pray for him. And how we need to understand that we ought to be constantly praying for our pastor that he might speak the word of boldness with power and with authority, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to understand that we ought to pray for one another constantly, even as we did for our brother Cody this morning. We need to be constantly praying for him, constantly praying for one another, praying for our families, praying for those with whom we come in contact day by day. We ought to have an attitude of prayer, and that's why he says, pray in the Spirit. He's talking about we don't need to go to our prayer closet every moment of the day. We can't do that. We have to live in a way that is just quite extraordinary, but we need to live nonetheless doing our job and doing the things that God's called beforehand that we would walk in them. But we need to have an attitude of mind and spirit in our heart of constantly praying, being aware of the presence of God, and being aware of the necessity of interceding for one another. And that's what he's talking about here, that we need to persevere in that manner. Now, I want to talk to you about a, a story that uh, Watchman Nee uses to conclude his book, Sit, Walk, Stand. And I have found it one of the more extraordinary stories I have ever read in a long time, because it talks about his encounter with the God of Elijah and what that meant. Now, what it was is what Watchman Nee is kind of putting into practice all these things he talks about in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, especially as it relates to standing against the enemy. And it started out with the fact there was an event that uh, he was uh, planning to attend, around the Chinese New Year, which lasts about 15 days, from the 1st of January through the 15th. And in that event, uh, he was planning, matter of fact, this was a gathering of Christians. He said this was a perfect time of the year to have a Christian conference. And he was planning to be a part of that. But to his utter disappointment, almost crushing his spirit, he was asked by the people who were conducting the convention that uh, he not attend. And he had a hard time understanding with that. He struggled with it for a while. That's a time when somebody can become very bitter, but he did not. But nonetheless, what he decided to do was to use that time wisely. And so he and the five other men decided that they would hold a conference, or they would hold a missionary expedition, if you will, to a small island off the south coast of China. And they would go there to preach the gospel of Christ and win converts for him. So they did that, and that was a consolation, if you will, for that denial of his presence at the conference. And they, he took along not only those five brothers in Christ, 
There was a young man of 16 years of age, which he calls Brother Wu. And Brother Wu, being 16, was a recent convert to Christ. He had been in trouble before, but because of his conversion to Christ, his life had been changed and transformed. And he was invited, and that's why I say he was kind of like John Mark's kindred spirit. As you remember, when Barnabas and Paul took John Mark along, it didn't work out very well. But they finally decided that they would all seven, including Brother Wu, go to this island off the south coast of China and preach the gospel. And the island was no insignificant place. As uh, Watchman Nee describes it, it was an island of 6,000 stoves, meaning it was about roughly 20,000 people in population. And so as a consequence, upon their arrival, which was late one night, he had made arrangements, prior arrangements, with a friend of his, a schoolmate, with which he had attended school years before, that they would be housed in his house, and they arrived late that night, and unfortunately, when the schoolmate found out that Watchman Nee and his group of men were planning to preach the gospel of Christ, they denied him uh, lodging. They had no place to stay. They had to ask around, and a Chinese herbalist finally consented to take them into his house and to house them in his attic, and he laid straw out there, and they were laying up on the planks of the, of the attic on a bed of straw, and that's where they spent the night. Well, for, Though this man was not a believer, because of the powerful witness of Watchman Nee and his group of brothers, he became a believer. Now, they went about preaching in the island, and nine days proved to be an utter disappointment. They had hardly any converts whatsoever. And as a consequence, Brother Wu, at 16, very young Christian, asked the question after nine days of fruitless witnessing, essentially, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe what we're preaching? We're preaching the Word of God. And in the next slide, you'll see why they didn't believe. Because they accepted a God by the name of Tuwain. We have a God, they said. He's one God. And his name is Tuwain, and he's never failed us. He's an effective God. And so that's who they put their trust in. And this is, you know, I, as I did the research over the Internet, uh, we don't know whether this is Tawang or not. Uh, the fact is, is that it's indicative of the kind of uh, Chinese gods that were there in those days and age. And the fact is that there's over almost 500 of them that they know of. They suspect maybe 200 or some odd more, almost 300, that have not been documented. But Tawang was one of them. He was the effective god of this South China Sea island. And so they had a they had planned a festival. And the festival date was set. Now, remember, this was nine days of fruitless preaching on January the 9th. They found out that the festival date was set for January the 11th at, uh, at 6 a.m. in the or at 8 a.m. in the morning. And the thing that was extraordinary about this, that for 286 years, these people could testify that that was always going to be a perfect day, sunny, cloudless, perfect 
for the festival in which they celebrated the worship of Tawain. Well, Brother Wu, being impetuous, or maybe he was full of faith, said, it's going to rain on the 11th. God, in essence, he was saying, it's going to rain on your parade. And lo and behold, when the, the, the island got that message, and it spread like wildfire, wildfire throughout all the island. And as a consequence, uh, Brother, Brother Nee really kind of stepped, he took him aside and was wondering, you know, why did you do this? But the fact is, is that they were thinking, well, maybe we were being impetuous when, when we made that promise, but the challenge had been set out. And as a consequence, if there's anything that will challenge us, or it's when we stick our necks out sometime and we know we'd better go to prayer in order to ensure that God's with us. And that's what they did. They wanted to know what the will of God was. And in the midst of their prayer, God's voice really spoke to Watchman Nee, I'm sure in his spirit, and it said, where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God of Elijah? And they thought back of that uh, description of the event in 2 Kings, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. And then they began, as they prayed, to be feeling confident that, indeed, God was going to do what he said he was going to do. So the 10th, the day before the festival was to begin, they went off to another island and had some success in gaining converts to Christ as they preached the gospel. They came back, and at dinner that night, they were thinking over what they were faced with, and they were tempted to pray again to make sure that God had heard their prayers, and they felt rebuked. Watchman, he felt rebuked with that same phrase, where is the God of Elijah? And then they began to understand that what God had promised, he would bring about. They were confident that he would do what he was said. The day of the 11th dawn, they were awakened by the sun streaming in their one single window in the attic. Bright, sunny day. And so they went down for breakfast, rather quiet, not sure that maybe they had stuck their necks out too far, I'm sure. And as a consequence, they had that first bowl of rice and nothing had happened. But with the time that they were ready for the second bowl of rice, they began to hear raindrops on the, uh, the roof. And then they began to shower. And then... A downpour occurred. And the prophets of Towing, the, the worshippers of Towing, uh, hastened to take, take up the, uh, you know, they, they put him really in a kind of a seated type of a, of a van in which he's placed on top and he might look like something like you see on the screen. But they, as they were trying to do this, uh, the rain was coming down so fast it was already up at the third step of their house at that time, the Chinese herbalist house. And as a consequence, it was almost at flood proportions by the time the worshippers of Towing got out and finally uh, were going to celebrate the festival. And they began to slip, and Towing fell over, and it got fractured, and they tried to repair him, and it was a fiasco from start to finish. And it was obvious, because it was obvious that the God of Watchman Nee and his brothers was greater than the God of Towain. So, what did they do? They moved the goalpost. 
They said, oh, we must have divined the wrong day. It's not going to be on the 11th. It shouldn't have been on the 11th. As a matter of fact, it obviously has to be uh, on the 14th. So we'll do it at 6 p.m. in the evening hours on the 14th. And so Watchman Nee and his brothers decided not to even worry about it at all. The dawn broke on that day bright and sunny, as they all expected. And yet, before 6 p.m. rolled around, another torrential rain poured out. Another torrential rain. So God delivered in a way that was miraculous. Where's the God of Elijah? He's still alive. He is still God. He's on his throne. He has given us victory, even as he gave Watchman Nee and his group, victory that day over the false god of Towang. He gives us victory over Satan. All we need do is put on the full armor. And by faith in him, by our position in Christ, by the walk in the Spirit, which we do not by our flesh, but by the Holy Spirit empowered with and working within us, we can win that same victory But we need to remember that we need to put on the armor of God. He's given it to us for a purpose. We need to be mindful of it in the way that we live our lives in Christ. I admonish you and I encourage you this morning, and I I speak to myself as well, that this is the walk that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, worthy of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we ask you so much this morning that uh, you confirm unto us as never before the wisdom of your word, that we might absorb it, that we might live it, that we might make it part of our very being. Lord, that we might put on the full armor, understanding that we have a charge to, to be on the alert, to be persistent, to stand firm against the evil one. And Father, we know that we cannot do it alone. The victory's been done. It is a thing already accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. All we need to do is by faith live it out. To trust him. To obey him. To heed the calling with which we have been called. So Father, we ask that you would stir up our souls and speak to us as never before. That we might apply these things in our life for his glory. For his honor. We praise the name above all other names. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the name that is above every name in every age to come, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.